Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good answer. Again, first service, I got a grunt. So <laughs> you're going to need your Bible because we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new with us here at Faith Covenant Church, we are in a series entitled House Rules. It's a series where we are walking together through the book of 1 Timothy verse by verse, and it has been fun, hasn't it? You know, it's been fun. Uh, I say that because three weeks ago, I took about an hour, which felt like three days, to unpack this idea that he's teaching of women in leadership at the pastoral level. And then I got a chance to hand that fun over to Pastor James, who spent some time talking about Paul's teaching to elders and their roles and what it's supposed to look like. And then that fun got passed over to Pastor Alex, and he got to talk about deacons and deaconesses within the church. And so while debated, it does seem like Paul is teaching that the role of pastor and elder are reserved for men, but the role of, of deacon is designed for both. And that's sort of how we live here at, at Faith Covenant. While we don't officially call them deacons, Susan Delamiser is the head of the benevolence team. So Deaconess Delamiser, right? We, you should all call her that when you see it. She's going to love it. She is a female, and she leads that ministry. Ray Faulkner is a male. He leads the finance team, Deacon Faulkner. Again, call him that. He'll love it too. And, and maybe the most powerful team in the entire church is the nominating committee. Gail Lancaster leads that. She's a female, de excuse me, Deaconess Lancaster. So when you see her, she's probably here in this service. Call her Deaconess Lancaster. She's going to love that. So we have 10 to 12 various teams here at Faith Covenant Church, led by both males and females using their gifts for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. But look now at how Paul starts this next section. It's almost like he knew what he was saying was going to ruffle some feathers, like people might be irritated and try to dismiss what he's saying. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions. Why? So that... If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul basically lays out his reason for writing this entire book. There is a design for church leadership, and this design matters. How a church leads matters. How a church functions matters. And there's a way it ought to be done. And there seems to be a way it ought not to be done. A church functions best when it functions according to the design that God gave us, as hard as that is to hear. An arm needs to function like an arm, and a leg needs to function like a leg. One is not better than the other. One body, different roles. And I don't know if you picked up on this in verse 14 and 15 there, but Paul has described the church as three things. First, Paul says that we are a family. It says we are the household of God. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but maybe it's just my family, but we have some crazy family members. 
So if you have a family reunion, maybe you've got some crazy family members that show up to your family reunion as well. You've got crazy aunt over here, right? And you got that drunk uncle over here. And then you got the weirdo cousins that are doing, you're like, what is wrong with you? And if you're a person in here right now or watching online that says, listen, I don't have any crazies in my family, you're the crazy, <laughs> right? No one has told you you're the crazy. <laughs> and, and to be honest, that's a little bit like a church. It's a little bit like Faith Covenant. We're a family. We're a family of believers. That's part of an even larger universal family of believers. And as hard as it is to be around the crazy, sometimes you're still family. You're my family and I love you, crazy or not. And some of you need to find your roles because in a family, a family has roles. There's nothing like the one person in the house that lays on the couch and expects everyone else to serve them, right? That just bring me my meals. I get to control the, the TV controller. It's all about me. And a similar thing in a church, a church has roles. Everyone in the church should have a role. Because some of you think that showing up on Sunday morning, we should just be glad that you're here. No. You would be mistaken. That's not how it works. This is a battleship, not a cruise ship. Okay? We're a battleship. We're not a cruise ship. And so everyone is supposed to be manning a post. And some of you just don't know how silly you look lounging on a chaise lounge on the deck of this battleship. Some of you think this is a cruise ship, and it's not. That's not how it works in a family, and that's not how it's supposed to work in this family. But Paul says that we're not only a family, that we're a family that's been called out of darkness. Do you see that in verse 15? He says we are the church of the living God. So we are a redeemed family who gather together under the headship, not of Kevin, it's under the headship of God. We don't worship a dead or a powerless God, a God like Artemis, a God like the pantheon of Roman gods from that day. Our God actually defeated death. He is very much alive. And together, we, we gather and we share a common story of redemption. That is what unites us together as this one big, often dysfunctional, but wonderful family of God together. That's what makes us unique. But thirdly, Paul says, we are also people who herald the truth. We herald truth. He says the pillar and foundation of the truth, not a truth, it's like the truth. Church, you know as well as I do, if you're building something, like we're talking about building a building out here, if you've got a messed up foundation, you're in trouble. If it's filled with cracks and, and broken apart and it's not thick enough, there's a real problem. That foundation had better be tried and true. It had better be strong and sure. And so we as a church, as the body, as the family of God, we boldly proclaim what truth, we proclaim what it is, and we proclaim what it does because it's built on a foundation of truth. And to be crystal clear, we don't determine the truth. 
I think we like to think of, well, that's my truth, and that's your truth. That's not how it works. We are not the keepers of the truth. We are simply declaring that which God has already determined to be true. God said, this is true, and he doesn't care necessarily whether I like it or not, because that is true. We point to his truth. That's the church. We are a redeemed family who exalts and proclaims the truth of the gospel, and we do it together. Not one or two of us, we do it together. And verse 16 has one more important thing for us. There's something else that binds us together. It says that we have a common declaration, what we affirm to be true. Now, show of hands, how many in here grew up like Baptist or Methodist or, or denomination, one of those two? Show of hands. Okay, it, it's okay. No shame, right? Because my hand would be up too. How many of you grew up like Presbyterian, Anglican, Catholic, something like that? Show of hands. Good. So if you grew up in one of those traditions and you grew up in a place that had a lot of uh, liturgy or a lot of liturgical things, you had something that bound you together. You may have memorized things like the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. See, you know it. And we even would sing it together. Others of you, you, you memorized the Apostles' Creed like I did. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right? We know these things, these creeds that come out. Others of you, though, you didn't have those two. Your church had that hymn that gave everybody goosebumps that you wanted to sing every Sunday. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Some of you memorized those things 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And it's still right there on the tip of your tongue, isn't it? These creeds, these hymns, these doxologies, and, and they really matter. And for many of you today, they've missed out, right, on some of these declarations, on some of these hymns and creeds. Here in verse 16, Paul begins to kind of bring our attention to some things that we believe together as truth, as the redeemed and dysfunctional at times family of God. You'll notice that Paul quotes what seems to be in an early Christian poem or hymn or creed that was maybe sung or maybe recited by the early church. It's like a confession. It says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You can almost hear them singing that. You can almost hear them reciting that. A creed is something that means this we believe together as true. Not some of us, all of us. This is something that unifies us and is held in common by all believers together as truth. Recently, I was in Scotland, and I was in several old churches, 500, 600 years old, and you'd walk by these stone walls, and they have etched in these walls a creed from that church. And if you ever want to know what they believe, they would just go, 
You know, and I wonder, as we build, perhaps something needs to be on the wall. Because 500 years later, I'm still walking by it going, there should be no reason why I wonder what this church was formed on, because they wrote it on the walls. They actually left it there for us to hear about. And so you've got these creeds that are powerful and they're beautiful. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession, they were written where a group of believers came together and said, this is what we believe about God. And this is what we believe about Jesus Christ. This is what we believe about the Holy Spirit and and the Scriptures and so on. And the idea is, in the midst of the heresy that was happening all around them, they were like, we declare these things to be right and true together. And verse 16 seems to be one of these early creeds. But take a second and notice what it affirms about Jesus. It starts by calling this a mystery. You have to be careful here because this does not mean, well, we really can't know. It's a mystery. I can't know. No, that's not what it's saying. The word mystery is speaking about that which was veiled in the Old Testament. Those who were looking forward to something, but they really didn't know totally what they were looking forward to, has now been revealed in the New Testament. So instead of thinking mystery like puzzle, Think more like, I can't believe the God of the universe did these six things as he revealed this mystery, which used to be a mystery, but is no longer a mystery. He revealed these things to us. Think wonder. Think amazement. That this Jesus, who existed prior to his birth on earth, he actually appeared here in the flesh, like you could touch him. He wasn't some hologram. He wasn't a cardboard cutout. He wasn't some angel that just floated around. No, you could touch him, and that's awesome. And the early church says, this we believe Jesus. This we believe as true about Jesus. And second, this creed says, Jesus was also vindicated by the Spirit. And you're like, wait, what? What they're saying is sin couldn't hold him down. He was resurrected from the dead because he defeated sin and death, and it was by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. And then he says not only that, he says this was seen by angels, that the resurrection was seen all throughout the angelic realm. Football season is about to start, yes. And I'm telling you, you know, you're at the football games and you hear people hooting and hollering and screaming. They got nothing on the angelic realm during the resurrection. I'm going to date myself. They're like, right? Arsenio Hall, old school, you know, right? And they're just excited about this resurrection. It was seen by the angels. Fourth, this creed says that this message was proclaimed among the nations, that this message is going out to the entire world. It goes out to all societies, all genders. It goes out to all cultures, all ethnicities. It goes out, every, it goes out to all generations because of his death and his resurrection. And this good news, this gospel, is for all of us. And it goes out into the entire world that Jesus is God's redemptive plan for all of human history, then, now, and forevermore. And he says that the world testifies to its completeness and its power. That's pretty great. 
And finally it says, taken up in glory. They're talking about the ascension, post-resurrection. And he is seated today at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. You can hear where these creeds and doxologies come from. The early church says, this is what we believe about the person of Jesus. And you, you remember this, this is what they're declaring. This creed, this hymn that brought them together to say that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is incarnate. Jesus is sinless. Jesus walked this earth for all the world to see. He laid his life down for those whom he came to save that he was crucified. And he was raised from the dead. And as a result, he's the only option to redeem humanity because he's the only one who can die for our sin. And this must, message must get out to the entire world. It must span the globe. The early church made a creed of this, and this belief was crucial to the operations of the church. Because lots of churches today have forgotten why they exist. I trained the student ministry leaders this week. The first question I started with with them is, why are you here? I would ask some of you that. And some of you are like, because my spouse made me, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm here because I've been here for 20 years and I don't know where else to go. I was invited. I would ask, why are you here? Is there a creed that drives you? If it is, it should affect the operations of the church. And this is essential you get because in just a second, he's going to offend you. Okay, so far, so good. I think you're, we're all still pretty good so far. Trust me, it's not going to be that way all morning. Because if you think about it, this is an amazingly beautiful thing that the words spoken 2,000 plus years ago by that body of believers is still being spoken today by this body of believers and is still affirmed as true. We believe this because it has not changed. That's truth. That's foundation, that strong pillars. It's a marvelous picture of the continuity of the body of Christ throughout the ages. Church history matters. But here's the kicker, because you knew it was coming, right? Because you go to faith covenant, right? Starting in, in chapter four, Paul's going to shift gears from that which we must affirm to that which we must reject. And if you remember, back in chapter 1, Paul told Timothy, in verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there, he says, in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So what Paul's saying is, hey, this list of things, these commands that I'm about to give you, I started giving them to you in chapter 1. Well, I'm going to kind of pick that up again now in chapter 4, and, and, and that it is your job in the midst of a wicked city in the midst of a very confused city, to hold to this plumb line of truth. And as you hold to this line in a wicked and confused city, you must do it with kindness and you must do it with gentleness. You've got to bring correction, but you've got to bring correction with a good conscience and you have to bring correction with a pure heart. 
But starting in verse 4, Paul's going to issue some new warnings. Anybody been offended yet? Okay, here we go. Verse 1, this is what it says. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So what he's saying is there's going to come a time they knew some things about Jesus, they knew some things about their faith, but they're going to reject that, and now they're going to testify to other things that are not true about Jesus. They're going to follow other things. So Paul very clearly is, Timothy, there's going to be a time, and that time is now. Actually, that time is still now in our world, where some will profess faith with their mouth. They will make confessions of faith, but they, like seeds scattered on the rock, they'll have no roots. They'll just be seeds, and then those seeds are burned up, and it has failed to produce real and lasting belief in Jesus Christ. We have to add something to it. And Paul says, as a result of that, there are going to be false doctrines. There's going to be heresies that are going to come from both within the church and from within the city where you are pastoring. And church, this very same danger is present in our world today. The false doctrines and beliefs about the person and work of Jesus Christ, these false doctrines are still prevalent today, 2,000 years later. And Paul uses very, very strong language here. What Paul is saying is, every lie that stands in opposition to the truth of the common confession this creed of who Jesus is, being Savior, being the only way to the Father, is sourced in demonic activity. He's saying that every lie that's brought up that opposes who Jesus is, is demonically fueled. Whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Islam, mysticism, you name it. They are false teaching. It's just not some alternative option. Jesus is not one of many ways that will get you to the same place. Paul says, not Kevin, that's garbage. Paul says that belief is rooted in demonic activity. And that belief is looking to ruin the beauty and the cost of the gospel message. And the fun continues, right? But that's what he's saying. It's rooted in demonic activity. But then Paul says, I want you to see where this comes from. And it gets better. Verse 2, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. This guy would have been canceled in two seconds today. Twitter would have banned him for life, Right? Paul says the men and women that are advocating for these demonically fueled belief systems are people that are seared in their conscience. They're hypocrites and they're liars. They appear good and truthful on the outside, he says, but underneath, they're rotten. And because of that, it's not that they don't have faith. The faith they have is distorted. They have hardened their own hearts, and they have seared their own consciences, and they're all jacked up. And in our world today, that is not okay to say. But that's exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. And verse 3 tells us of the consequences when this happens. Verse 3 says, they forbid people to marry. Order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So instead of listening to Paul, 
right? So instead of listening to the apostles, even instead of listening to Timothy, they're saying, you know, you need to do this and not just listen to them. There's actions you have to do. And if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul had already begun to deal with some of the errors of belief that were found in the people in the city of Ephesus, specifically with aspects of something known as Gnosticism. And what this particular branch, there's two main branches of Gnosticism. What this branch of Gnostics were teaching was that if you really wanted to be tight with Jesus, you had to, like, like, you had to have some special experience that, 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 or some aspect that dealt with your salvation, but it had, God had to reveal himself to you outside of the word of God. Yeah, the word of God's cool, but you had to have this experience over here. And then, if you received that special knowledge, you kind of moved from the JV team spiritually, if you know what I'm saying, to the varsity team, spiritually speaking. That if you had this sort of awakening inside of you, you were, you were kind of enlightened. You're the varsity team. You kind of get something spiritually, but you know, you're not part of the JV team anymore. And in Gnosticism of that day, there, there are two branches. This branch said that you had to abstain from certain things. The other branch of Gnosticism believed that your body was here and your spirit was here. And your spirit was not fallen, but your body is. And so because your body's falling, is fallen, you might as well do anything and everything you want. Just do whatever you want as often as you want. No rules because your body can't touch your spirit. And your spirit is the only thing that's going to be with God. So treat your body however you want to, do whatever you want, live however you want, but nurture your spirit because that's going to go ahead and be with him. And so somehow they were like, God doesn't care about your body. He only cares about your spirit. So if you were enlightened, you were doing whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, but nurturing your spirit separately. That makes no sense to me, but that's what they believe, just saying. Uh, the other branch of Gnosticism, to which Paul is speaking here, is the legalistic branch of Gnosticism. This group would say, hey, listen, if you've made the varsity team and you're enlightened now, you have this new knowledge, and on top of that, you need to deny the flesh. Don't feed the flesh, starve it. You need to deny any earthly pleasures that's coming your way. You need to subdue the flesh. And so they had this radical kind of aesthetic attitude towards sex and marriage and keep, keeping certain days over the others and how you uh, engage with certain foods and these foods versus those foods. This group was basically saying, hey, there's some good things. Things that God has declared as good. Marriage and sex in the right context, food and drink, those sorts of things. But they were declaring those things evil and saying, you should never, ever partake in that, ever. Stay away from that always. And I want you to notice in verse 4 and 5 that Paul is going to push back on this quite hard. He says this is an errant belief. Paul says, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So Paul goes back to the Word of God and says, listen, um, if we read our Bibles, I don't know, 
Genesis chapter 1, at the end of the first day, he said, it is right. And then he created a whole bunch of stuff on the next day. And at the end of that day, he said, it is right. It's the answer to everything. Whether it was material or spiritual, either one, at the end of the day, it is good. You know why? Because to God, there's no separation from material and immaterial. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. In fact, God says, I made the tree. I made the rocks. I made the mountains. I made the oceans. It is good. I made the planets. It's good. He says, I made humans. It is good. I made marriage, Genesis chapter 2. And I made marriage to be a picture of the bride of Christ with Christ as the head. A marriage between a husband and a wife here is this picture of, of God and his church. Hey, Gnostics, marriage isn't a bad thing. Biblically, marriage is beautiful. It's holy. It's a special thing. Church, marriage will never be outdated and antiquated regardless of what culture says because it is ordained by God. It's timeless. Culture can say, oh, pfft. That's so old school. Yeah. And so are the rocks, right? And so am I. Like, everything's old school to God. It's all old. And marriage was there at the beginning. And really for these, this group, food is sort of a similar thing. So Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 9 speak to plants and animals. That they are pleasing and good for food, animal and plant. Even in Acts chapter 10, all of the dietary restrictions are removed. Even bacon. Yes, right? Even shellfish. If you want to be a vegetarian, he says, that's okay. You can be a vegetarian. And if you want to be a carnivore, that's okay too. God declared it's all on the menu. So biblically speaking, it's all on the menu. Now, if we want to have a discussion about the way we treat animals on the planet, we should have that discussion maybe. That perhaps we're not doing our food sources the right way. That's a different discussion from what he has said we can participate in. So maybe instead of radical denial, or instead of radical consumption, maybe we should do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul advocates us to think differently. Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Are you over-consuming? Are we beaten on the planet? Are we beating on animals? Like, are we, are we doing this wrong? He's not saying don't do it. He says, maybe you're, the way you're handling the resources I've given you are wrong. Look, if you want a good steak, enjoy. If you want a glass of wine, enjoy a glass of wine. If you enjoy food, Paul says, enjoy that. He says, don't be a drunkard. Don't be a glutton. Don't let those things control you. Don't be consumed by them. If it's starting to get a, a foothold in your life or in your house, maybe you need to set up some tighter boundaries and don't let them be idols in your life, but enjoy what God has made because he's made them for our good. But here's what I think is very important as we look at this. Do you notice how Paul knows that these things are good? What did he quote? Scripture. He goes back to the plumb line. He went back to the standard that's found outside of his preferences. It's outside of his will, outside of his wants and desires. Paul goes back to the word of God and prayer. That's what he does. This is how we know what true is. This is how we know what's right. Paul is destroying these arguments based on God's word, not his opinions, not what he feels to be true. He goes back to the plumb line of scripture and prayer. 
And if you think about Timothy and Paul's day, and if you think about our day today, the heresies are still the same in the church. It's either licentiousness or legalism, isn't it? In over 2,000 years, I don't know that it's changed. In our day, this is how it looks. Look, I'm a believer. I can never out-sin God's grace. God's grace always supersedes my sin. There's nothing that I could do that would ever be too much for him. So knowing that, then I am secure in my salvation, knowing that God has done it all on my behalf. There's nothing that I can do to lose this relationship with God. It really then doesn't matter what I do. If that's true, then it doesn't matter how I talk. If that's true, then it it doesn't matter how I behave because I have license. I have freedom. And these people's favorite Bible verse, Galatians chapter 5, I have freedom in Christ. We have freedom in Christ to do whatever we want. We can say whatever we want, freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want, freedom in Christ. And while you might not be promoting promiscuity like one of the branches of Gnosticism, What we are saying, at least to some degree, is, look, if I'm saved, does God really care about my language? I mean, if I'm saved, does God really care if I have too many glasses of wine? Does God really care what I watch, what I listen to, how I spend my money? Does God really care how I behave, how I operate, and how I think? Does he care? The problem is a lack of biblical understanding of freedom. Yes, you are freed from something. We are freed from sin. We are freed from Satan's dominion in our life. But what we miss is, is that we're freed to something. Too many Christians live and think that, I have no master. He freed me, so now I'm the master. I'm in control. I make all the decisions. And he's like, "Mm, yeah, no, right? That's not how it works. When the truth is, Christ is now my master. He freed me from something, but he freed me to something. I'm a doulos. I'm a, I'm a bondservant to him. We have been freed now, but we're freed to live with a new master. That's Galatians chapter 5. That's how it plays itself out today. Now the other side today, the other branch today, legalism. And this is just as prevalent Legal, legalism is defined by anything, anything that we believe that we do to earn God's favor. If like, if I do this over here, God smiles bigger at me. And if I don't do these things over here, he smiles even bigger. That's what we kind of think. It's basically saying I need Jesus, but I also need to do and not do these other things. People who struggle here, they, they love this number system. What they do is they, they number their lives from zero to 10, and they start off every day at zero, and they go, I had a quiet time today, I'm now a two, right? And then I prayed, three. And then I didn't cuss, six. But going to work, I flipped that guy off, two, 
right? But I showed up at work on time, and I held my tongue, six. But that image flashed across the screen, four, right? And we do this every day, every hour, every week, every month, and every year. On and on it goes, and beyond, up and down the number scale we go. One minute, one day, one week, one month, we're close to God, and he's really proud of me, and he loves me. And the next week, oh, had a bad week. That attitude is incorrect and inconsistent with the gospel. As a believer, we don't start every day at zero. We start every day at 10. You're a believer. You're a new creation. You're a son or daughter of the Most High God. You, when you have your quiet time, 10. When you flip that guy off, 10. When you pray, 10. Whatever you do, 10. Nothing changes with my relationship with God. Now, now I need to confess that. Like he doesn't love me more. I need to confess that. I need to repent of that. But my behavior does not determine God's love for me. Some of you need to write that down. Because y'all live in that camp. It does not determine how he feels about me. The solution to a legalist is understanding that God has already fully rescued you from sin. He is enough. That you are already seated in the heavenly places. Your identity has changed. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. And there is nothing you can do that will ever change that. Nothing. And if we're honest, we put these same restrictions, the same numbering system on our kids, don't we? And we put it on our family members and the people we go to church with. Oh, there are four today. Mm. They think there are seven, four. Right? We, we have a number for everyone in the whole church if you're a legalist. And the problem with both camps, they're both destructive and they both deny the sufficiency of Jesus and what he's done for us. And again, the only thing that keeps us from veering down these very, very dangerous paths, according to Paul, is the word of God and prayer. If you can't find your Bible, you're on very dangerous ground. If your prayer life is seconds versus minutes, you're in a very dangerous place. Because these two are where we must turn. This is ultimately what's going to help us discern what God's will is for our life. That we go to the Word of God and we go to prayer. And by the way, there's a real temptation to look at this stuff and go, that's an old book, right? Let's just ignore it. Let's just brush, brush it off. It's, it's old-fashioned. It's out of touch. To dismiss these teachings now that we've, Kevin, we've advanced so far technologically. We've advanced so far scientifically and societally. Kevin, we're not dealing with Gnosticism anymore. We have new information and new thoughts to base our decisions upon. God's word is really just one of the options for us these days. And here would be my exhortation. Church. I can't speak for every church. Can we be a family of believers? Can we be a family of believers that are Jesus-exalting people? Not me-exalting people, Jesus-exalting people that we would allow our lives to be shaped and molded by the truth found in God's Word, not this pulpit. That it will be found in God's Word and it will be found in prayer. 
that we would confess these things in common together, that we would exalt him, and that we would let him be all-sufficient in our workplaces, all-sufficient in our schools, all-sufficient in our marriages, in our homes, in our neighbors, in our lives, that we would never add to the gospel, and that this family would never subtract from the gospel either, that we would not pursue him just so that we could look righteous, so that we could look holy, that we would actually grow in righteousness, and that we would actually strive for holiness, striving to look more like him, not me or your neighbor, strive to look like him more every single day in every way, that we would bring our lives in line with the word of God, and that it says it for all of us. Are you willing to join me in this adventure called holiness, responding to his immense love and grace and mercy in our lives, that we would be a people on mission, on a battleship, and not a cruise ship, every day together? Will you join me in that? And if you will, then we need to listen to some house rules.